I think my context is that the global economy and um, the global world system, you know, the entire status quo is entering a new era, which I call an era of scarcity, which is um, different categorically from the era that we've um, had for 75 years of abundance. And the abundance has not just been in that there's plenty of resources, it's also been affordable, like it's been low cost. And so as costs rise for a variety of reasons and scarcity impacts um, the global economy, then the, the sort of um, model of, of growth at any cost is, is, no, is broken. It's not gonna work anymore. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. As the old saying goes, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's easy for investors to fall into the traps laid by their belief systems. Whether to the bullish or bearish side, we all have our own biases that can warp the way we perceive reality. Which is why forcing ourselves to take a systemic view of the economy, markets, and society can be so helpful. By understanding the way that our systems work and projecting current developments through to their most logical outcomes, we can sidestep most of our biases as we develop our predictions and conclusions. Today's guest expert, author and macro observer Charles Hughes Smith, has made a career of this kind of systemic thinking. We'll talk with him about where today's really big trends are taking us. What kind of economy and standard of living should we expect in the unfolding future? Charles, thanks so much for joining us today, especially so early there, your time in Hawaii. Well, thank you, Adam. It's my pleasure to be on uh, Wealthion. <laughs> well, it's about time. So, Charles, you and I have been friends for a long, long time. I was doing the math. I mean, I think it's like over 12 or 13 years now. Um, and it's great to finally have you on Wealthion here. Um, I got a lot of questions for you about your current writings. But uh, before we do, uh, let me just do the favor of asking you the same question I ask everybody when they first come on the channel. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, that's a great uh, question. And um, I think my context is that the global economy and um, the global world system, you know, the entire status quo is entering a new era, which I call an era of scarcity, which is um, different categorically from the era that we've um, had for 75 years of abundance. And the abundance has not just been in that there's plenty of resources, it's also been affordable, like it's been low cost. And so as costs rise for a variety of reasons and scarcity impacts um, the global economy, then the, the sort of um, model of, of growth at any cost is, is, no, is broken. It's not gonna work anymore. And so we're in this vast, um, complex transition of, of eras. <clears throat> and of course, that's very confusing and, and complex because people who are benefiting from the current system are going to fight to keep it as it is, right? And then the forces of adaptation and evolution are um, trying to sort out what's the best way forward. And so um, I, on top of all this, I'm also seeing that the metrics we use are basically... Um, like a horse-drawn carriage from 1890. I mean, GDP, corporate uh, profits, um, how we measure growth and uh, prosperity, they're really um, so outdated that they're not really helping us. And so we need to develop an entirely new set of, of metrics to help, help guide us. So I'd say we're in for a period of turmoil, which is not all bad. In other words, when you're gonna make a huge transition, um, whether it's a household or a, a, an enterprise or a nation or the global economy, you're going to go through um, a lot of um, ups and downs as, as this um, gets sorted out. And there'll be winners and losers. And that's really what we're talking about today. Okay. Yeah. And um, of course, the intent of this channel and, and this whole video here is to try to give people enough insight so that we're increasing their odds of being on the winner side. Uh, of that transition. Um, all right, Charles, so so we got a tall order here because we're going to be trying to pack uh, the the messages of several books you've written um, into a single interview here. I'm going to do my best. Uh, we might need to bring you back on to get to whatever we can't get into in this discussion here. Um, <clears throat> but 
one of the things that uh, your recent writings have really focused on is the difference between kind of navigating by ideology versus navigating by a systemic approach. And, and, and maybe that's the fat pitch that I can just toss you here at the beginning and let you sort of explain the differences of the two and, and, and why consciously making the choice to focus on one versus the other is probably going to be a, a huge determinant of your destiny in, in this transition. Yeah, that's a, that's a great topic. And of course, we're all prone to having our own um, sort of, um, if not biases, then preferences that, that fit our value system and, and experience. And so the thing about ideologies is they're, they're kind of uh, quick and dirty, right? You, you, you kind of buy into the idea that if this is ideal, were only reached, everything would be great. You know, so we see that in socialism, capitalism, Bitcoin, you know, everybody's, if only it was implemented correctly, everything would be fantastic. But the real world is, is actually maps much more closely a system. In other words, there's inputs and then there's processes that go on, that work on those inputs, and then you get an output. And so that that to me makes a lot more sense in terms of trying to be predictive in a in a um, useful fashion, right? Either you change the inputs, or you change the processes, or you change both of them, or you're going to get the same output. <laughs> so, and it also helps us break down all the different um, complexities that we deal with and try to group them in into into um, categories that we can understand you know we can't understand you know um hundreds of millions of inputs but we can under if we break them down into into a systemic kind of understanding then we can kind of start making sense of things that are are actually very complicated and so that's why i i kind of favor systems and of course it it means that sometimes i'm a libertarian i mean i'm accused of being a communist i'm you know I'm a, I'm a libertarian. I'm a conservative too, <laughs> because, <laughs> because I see elements of, of value in each of these ideologies, but we, it's better to kind of understand them as inputs in a system. Okay. And, and you, um, you've written here that all socioeconomic systems evolved as problem solving structures. So there's a reason that they were created, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we relied on these things to, you know, provide the basics for living, right? I mean, you know, food, safety, governance, you know, all that type of stuff. So they all, they all have a role. Um, it seems like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like um, uh, if these systems don't evolve, um, you end up having what you sort of alluded to in your first answer, which is you, you sort of start playing by this antiquated playbook. Um, and the rule book you're using isn't isn't appropriate for your present, which then isn't creating the foundation for the future that you want here. And it seems to me that a lot of the problems that we have is is when you know the system sort of gets set in a certain way, and then, as you said, sort of everyone that benefits from it is trying desperately to maintain the status quo and keep it from changing. Um, and usually, the, the the more that that conflict builds, it, it's enriching those that are that are controlling the status quo and it's diminishing the prospects of those that aren't and you know there's a number of different systems that we can and probably will talk about in this discussion you know but if you just comes to mind if you just come to mind or like you know the way that our our capitalist system you know works these days is it's it's dominated now by a lot of kind of corporate cartels right so the the pure capitalism that creates sort of you know freedom and fairness and equality of opportunity is really getting suffocated here from that. And then we see that get reflected. And also you can, we can talk about the financial system as well. And, and some of the things where that's captured by, you know, the dominant interests where the playing field is so slanted to the big money uh, and the individual investor, you know, gets the raw end of the stick. So I could probably go on in, in, in many different other examples, but can you talk about kind of this, the sense of like, we, we you know, these things evolved for a good purpose they just sort of got bastardized as time went on. Do we need to throw everything out or do we need to just sort of break everything down into its fundamental components and reassemble it for the type of future we want? Well, that's a great topic, Adam. And um, I think my, my basic perspective is that when you centralize power, which goes along with centralizing wealth, then those at the top tend to 
naturally want to maintain the system and in the stasis, you know, the fixed kind of the way it is now works for us. So let's keep it this way. And you can see that in like imperial China, you know, the, the rise and fall of various dynasties. In other words, from a very long point of view, we see this in, in, um, in city states um, going back, you know, three, 4,000 years um, and, and uh, nation states and empires they all kind of fall into this trap of when they centralize power um, too aggressively and there's no longer com competition, you know, competition, both economically, politically, socially, then um, you, you, you basically suppressed natural selection, right? There, the, the society and the economy no longer have the means to adapt and evolve as conditions change. And so, I'll give you a real world example today, I think, um, which is uh, Michael Pettis, um, who's an expert on China and based in China, has has done a good job explaining to the rest of us the um, we get trapped in these legacy systems, which in China's case was the 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 um, model of development that they chose was very heavily uh, dependent on real estate, right? Building a lot of, 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 of apartments. And um, of course they needed housing. Uh, they were an underdeveloped country. And so all this made terrific sense in the um, 1980s and 90s, but it, um, it actually ended up being tied into these legacy systems like the local governments are largely funded by selling the rights to development. And so they're trapped now in this system because there's so many um, legacy players um, who are politically, you know, very powerful. Who's saying we got this is the model that works for us. Let's keep it. But it's like there's something like between 30 and 50 million empty flats in in China that are just, you know, sort of like holders for excess capital. And so um, that's not necessarily healthy for the, right. the Chinese and, and economy. just de depreciating along the way. <laughs> yeah, and so that model it, it's a good example of how. Um, even you know the smartest people in the room and the most um, the most effective, terrific uh, models, they they eventually become uh, intermarginal returns. They, they they stop working, but those people that are benefiting from them don't want them to stop working. So they try a lot of gimmicks and tricks, which puts um, the system at risk of uh, it. Just increases the chance of systemic uh, decay and collapse instead of just dealing with that one sector. And so I, kind of the short um, answer I think here is if you if you allow centralized power to become, become too dominant, then you get this kind of stasis. And um, what you want is you want competing um, sectors, elements, political parties, et cetera, because that churn is, is how you adapt. Okay. So we, we have at least right now maybe some of the sclerosis of resistance to change. And we're now transitioning into this, what you called uh, earlier, a vast, uh, complex, uh, vast and complex era of transition, right? That's going to be largely defined uh, by scarcity, right? That, that resources are no longer going to be as abundant or low cost as we were able to enjoy, or at least we in the West will say we have been able to enjoy over the past what you know century, basically, right? Maybe more. Um, so uh, I guess let's let's talk about the drivers of that scarcity. So 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 why do you why do you like what, what, what's the argument for why you believe we're going to be in, in this period of scarcity? And then let's talk about what kind of adaptation do we need, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to move away from the sclerosis to something that's going to adapt to this involving unfolding future, you know, what are these specific types of movements you think we need to, to do that well? Okay. Those are great, uh, great questions. And so I'll try to take the first one. Um, and so the, um, the era of scarcity is driven, I think by, um, one pattern which we can go back and look at history, and many historians have have done this, Peter Turchin, uh, for example, that um, humans over the course of civilization tend to like um, increase their consumption, increase their population up to the level of their resources that they have. So things are terrific when you discover a new resource, right? And then um, it, it's a era of prosperity. Everything's abundant and cheap and everything's fantastic. And then the population and consumption rises up and, and starts soaking up that. And then if there's any sort of um, diminishment of those resources for climate change, which is um, a, a common element, um, you know, the little ice age in the, in the 1600s 
um, was one of the factors that created like 30 years of war in Europe, right? And so we see that this these um, these changes occur, and and it's um, on on an almost a cyclical basis, right? And so there's there's that element of of human history. Then there's the other part of we've become so good at consuming vast resources that uh, we're sort of um, we're depleting the cheap easy stuff. Doesn't mean it's gone. But it just means that it's going to be more expensive to go into places that don't have any roads that are far from harbors, for example. And you're going to have to build an entire infrastructure to get to that mountain, to, to tear it down, to get to lithium. And, you know, you need tons of fresh water and, and so on and so forth. There's no all the easy stuff's been been done. And so there's that. And then there's geopolitical tension, which is also a historical pattern. Now that resources are scarce or uh, perceived to be scarce. Um, or more expensive, then now there's going to be ge geopolitical uh, conflict over who gets to um, uh, control those resources. So I think those are the the elements of 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 scarcity um, that are and, in and play. So, so, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to no. put a visual up here to help drive it home for folks. Because um, Charles, as you know, I used to talk a lot about this topic in my previous life before Wealthion. Um, I'll see if I can find it here, but but uh, if I can, here's a, a photo taken in the Klondike, I think, back in the 1800s, and these two guys are leaning up against this boulder here. That boulder is a copper nugget. It is it is like a Volkswagen size copper nugget that these guys are leaning against. Um, we don't see those anymore, and we don't because that was the easy stuff that was just lying around these massive big you know copper deposits. Um, now we are going after, you know, um, uh, weaker and weaker grades, more and more dilute grades of, of copper in the world. Um, and I'm going to try to find a, a photo to juxtapose here with that nugget with the Bigham Canyon, Canyon mine in Utah, which I've been to actually, um, which used to be a mountain. And now it's, it's an inverse mountain. It's this massive gaping hole in the ground. Um, and you go there and there's just unbelievable activity with these massive trucks that are like i mean they're, they're they're like i don't know 15 feet tall if not not bigger than that i mean the tires themselves are like eight or nine feet tall um that are pulling all this ore out of the ground and it's rock that has to then be pulverized and and, and the trace amounts of copper they find in there is 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 basically what we're going after now because that's what's left right so i, I find visually that can really be a good um jeller in people's mind of like what you talk about when you're like the easy stuff's gone yeah you know we, we used to stick a shallow straw in the ground in texas and get a gusher right and now we have to go out you know into the deep sea and you know you know go look for for oil that's miles under the bottom of the ocean and and we don't do that because it's fun we do it because that's that's where the stuff that's left is now right and i, I think uh remember the deep water horizon uh, I remember reading that that had like more computing power and technological complexity than the space shuttle had, right? And again, we, we we don't do that because we just like a challenge. We do that because that's where the material deposits are left. It's harder to get to. It's more expensive to extract. And all that stuff rolls up into higher cost for what we're we're pulling out of the ground. And in many cases, just scarcity because it's just harder to find and obtain. Absolutely. Uh, that's a, The visuals will be really helpful in that regard. The other elements are that, you know, the, the, the growth at any cost um, kind of economy that we have um, that we've developed kind of by legacy abundance. It, I call it the waste is growth landfill economy because we don't really differentiate between wasting resources. That's growth, too. You know, and as people like to say, you know, when a, something burns down, it's a, it's good for GDP. Right. And a million cars sitting in a traffic jam going nowhere. That's burning more fuel. That's a growth element, too. So. We need to differentiate between investing um, resources and getting more out of them. In other words, um, instead of just waste is growth. And then that's, of course, part of the planned obsolescence. How do you make more money? Well, you force your consumers to buy a new product every two years. Um, so and then that ends up in the landfill. Like we don't really recycle much of our industrial waste. Uh, we like to think we do, but the reality is we don't. So that model's really not going to work anymore in an, in an era of scarcity. The two drivers of the last, say, 40 years of, of growth at, by any means has been financialization 
and globalization, right? And this is why we've kept costs down is financialization has lowered the cost of money of, of credit and it greatly expanded the amount of credit that was available to go out and buy stuff. Then globalization sought out um, places with uh, cheap labor and very few environmental standards and um, places where the currency is, is um, beggar thy neighbor, you know, always uh, being depreciated. So we moved production to those places. And, and so the cost of, of uh, production fell. So, but both of those trends are now sort of running out of rope. You know, they've reached marginal returns. They don't, they're not yielding the results. And hence, guess what? We have inflation for the first time since basically the 1970s. So um, this is another one of those things of those legacy systems are no longer working. So what do we do now? And uh, my approach is to look at like the three big elements of, of any economy, whether it be national or global, are there's the market, right? The marketplace of transactions and production and consumption. And then there's the government. And then there's the social structure, which includes like um, the uh, moral order, you know, the sort of agreed upon um, moral foundations of that society and the social contract. Like, what do I need to do to get ahead? You know, how do I improve myself and, the, and my household? So each of those can kind of tug at the other ones and pull it forward or be, be pulled forward. And so we are used to seeing technological change, you know, rapid technological change that pulls the government and society forward almost effortlessly. But we've sort of um, less attuned to the way that society has to change um, as well. And it goes through these tumultuous periods where what was acceptable in the past becomes unacceptable. And, and so uh, a, new, a new sort of social demand is placed on the market and on the government. And the last time that we went through this was really the, the 1960s, where we saw the rise of, of these um, huge social changes. What was acceptable in the past, such as you know, uh, racial bias or, um, you know, unequal rights for women, uh, these things were no longer acceptable. And same with the environmental movement and so on. So that I think is what a lot of people don't really anticipate. We all understand how technology changes, right? The, the printing press in, in, you know, the 1500s and, um, you know, <clears throat> railroads in the 1870s and um, so on. And, um, so it, it's harder to anticipate social change because it's harder to predict. Like the, it's not the result of technology. It's enabled by technology, but it's not something we can um, easily trace. It just sort of pressure builds up that the system isn't working. And then we have to come up with new solutions that are acceptable to the, the broad population, not just to, you know, the elite. All right. Well, th this is what I find really interesting about your work, Charles, which is, um, uh, you know, we, we have these three uh, elements or, or, you know, what, what I would call, um, what's a good way to describe them? I don't know, sort of mechanisms for how we run life, right? The, the market, government, and society. And um, they, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, which is that that these are all, they all evolved as problem-solving mechanisms, Right. And it's like, once they don't have a problem to solve anymore, uh, then they get into trouble, right? They become <laughs> self-serving, right? And we get that that inequity and the sclerosis where folks are trying to protect their fiefdoms and all that stuff, right? But what, what kind of gives me hope is, is when you talk about these great challenges, you know, I think the, the average person can say, wow, that just sounds really overwhelming. Like, what hope do we have? Do I just do, do we just throw up our hands in despair here? Um, and, and I think your answer, and correct me if I'm wrong, is no, no, no. We have the tools to actually engineer the type of future we want. We're just not using them well, and we need to get back to to, to using them, you know, for us versus against us. And in many cases, it's just giving these these mechanisms the right problems to go solve, right? And uh, if, if I can just opine on each one real quickly and then let you run, um, uh, maybe I'll go through them in reverse order. You know, what society's job is to do is to tell government, these are our values. Th th these are important. Essentially, these are the problems we want addressed, right? So you talked about the 60s, right? Hey, racial bias is bad, right? We, we want a more equal society. 
um, that also extends to gender. We want you to fix that too, right? And so we had the civil rights movement, we had the women's movement, we made a lot of progress in a short period of time. Um, the government's job is to, you know, essentially sort of set the rules of the game and, and then be the referee to make sure that the game is being played out the way it wants it to and is fair and, you know, everybody's clear on where the, the boundary lines are and whatnot. But other than that, maybe this is my bias, it's kind of to get out of the way, right? But it, it, it's it's to set the parameters. And then the market's job is to go and play the game in the parameters that the uh, that the government has set. And, and, and of course, you know, when the government gets involved in the game, that's when you get, you know, government interference and intrusion. And that's where you get the, I just tweeted this out the other day, Bill Maher's rant of the the $1.7 million toilet in San Francisco. Maybe we can talk about that for a second, but you just get, you know, bloat and inefficiency and unfairness and cronyism and all that stuff, right? And same thing with the market. You know, if the market is is left to itself, you end up having, um, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the commons, right? Where the, the market doesn't value uh, these communal assets that are so essential, um, where the market can get concentrated, where you begin to have, uh, you know, monopolistic and trust issues and whatnot as well, right? So you need the government there to to be the ref, right? And, and, and again, to tell the market what it can and can't do. But 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 once it's done that, the market can be left unfettered within those boundaries to innovate and to do the, the problem solving for us in terms of developing the technologies and the solutions that are going to carry us into the forward, carry us forward. So my point here is like, we have these three mechanisms, these three structures that are incredibly powerful tools we just need to use them the right way. And right now it doesn't seem like we're, we're using them well at all in, 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 in any of those three areas. So that, that, that's my opining now, I'll let you run. No, I think that's, I think that's a very good summary of, of the situation. And so, um, and, and, you know, the government, we almost forget that it has a proper role <laughs> because it's, it's, it's um, decayed to the, to the point where we sort of forget that there is a, a useful role for for government as a problem solving structure I, let's go as back opposed to, the, to a problem creating structure. Yeah, which is what it, it is now right um and we all have endless examples of that so let's go back to the 1970s which i've done recently in, in a, a variety of blog posts because that decade is you know known for stagflation right various um you know reasons behind it and it was sort of it's generally dismissed as like, oh, that was a lost decade. That was terrible. It was like high inflation, low growth, stagflation. It was a, uh, it was a terrible decade. And it's all like, well, wait a minute, let's take a look at that. Because actually that was an example of the kind of transition that we're entering now in my view. And I'll explain real quickly. Society decided that rivers that caught on fire and rivers that were filled with um, dead carcasses <laughs> was not a good thing. And um, the air, you know, was the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and that kind of stuff. In other words, industry had um, basically used the uh, nation's environment as a dumping ground, right? As, as right. Um, we, we had the cry, the crying Indian. Remember yeah, that commercial? Exactly, and so and and this was um, how the market functioned because this increased profits, right? You externalize your 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 costs and then you privatize your profits, right? So society changed, and then the government came in, even though it was a conservative president, President Nixon oversaw the um, implementation at, with a divided Congress. Everybody got together and they put in the EPA. Now, industry didn't like this at first, of course, because it was uh, totally upsetting and it was going to drive their costs uh, much higher. And it did. And in fact, the United States, both private and public sectors, had to invest in today's money trillions of dollars in the 70s. That's why there was stagflation because we had to invest so much money in cleaning up the environment and rebuilding and re-engineering our industrial base to become much more efficient and less polluting. And yet look at the payoff. It's like, was fantastic, you know, because we then made our whole industrial base much more competitive and we cleaned up the environment, which helped public health. And we created new economic opportunities instead of who wants to build a condo on a river that stinks and it catches fire, no one. Now the rivers are clean, people are developing properties. There's, um, I, I, I posted a photo of a kayak uh, 
regatta, you know, that um, it, it used to just be a river that was so polluted, no one would, you wouldn't want to get close to it. So there's a lot of economic benefits that came out of the 70s. It just took a decade of investment. And then we've reaped the benefits for decades since. Um, so I think that's what kind of a model we need to look at, you know, that everybody's going to complain about the fact there's, you know, growth is low. Well, it's growth is low because we're investing in the long term. And so the winners will be to look the people that look at this and go, hey, we need to redo the industrial uh, basis of the country, just like we did in the 70s. Right. And it's going to pay off in the future, but we're going to have to invest in the long term, not like for next quarter. Okay, let, let me let me just clarify a little bit. So, um, the the reason why you're saying we need to basically overhaul uh, the the economy um, is because we're entering this era of greater scarcity, so that like productivity and efficiency are going to be much more important going forward. Right? You're nodding yes. as I'm saying this, and and I imagine globally, you're saying, look, the countries that get this early and rejigger their economies to to you know, thrive, better thrive in this higher input cost world, they're going to reap a lot of advantage, right? Okay, you're nodding as I'm saying all this, right? Um, okay, so then what we need to do as a society is we need to make this priority clear, right, to government and say, look, this is this is what we want, this is what we value, right? We don't want this this stagnating pursue growth at all costs model that is that is basically breaking down in front of us. We want this more efficient uh, nimble, however you want to describe it, uh, a model to exist. And so, you know, we're going to put you in there and, and want you to create programs and regulation, et cetera, that, that, that foster this. But then we as a society, we have to be adults about this and say, look, it's going to, it's going to, this is going to require, this transition is going to require a period of investment that is going to hurt to a certain extent, right? We're, we're going to have higher costs. We're going to maybe have slower growth in the short term, whatever. Um, but we're investing for the longer haul, right? We're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're being adults. We're delaying gratification today to have more bounty tomorrow, right? Um, and, and so this, you know, this sort of requires a bit of an overhaul of our society, right? Which is all about like, I don't want to take any pain. I want instant gratification. I always want someone to come in and rescue me if I feel bad, right? Um, we're, we're not... I think it's fair to say we're not the greatest generation, you know, that that built most of the infrastructure in this country. Um, and so we're going to need, you know, to kind of put on our our, our big boy pants uh, and, you know, return to a, a level of maturity where we say, hey, look, you know, we've we've got to start taking a longer view uh, and we've got to, you know, if we want a better tomorrow, we got to invest for it today. So just like you said, the, the stagflation of the 70s, which you, you're right, we all remember that as like, oh, what a terrible time. And look, there were lots of great, lots of parts about that time that are regrettable. You're right, though, Charles. We can look at that from a different point of view and say, "Hey, we were actually prepaying the cost, uh, prepaying the the price for what we were going to unleash in terms of economic activity after that." And you, with that type of lens, it's like, "Hey, that was actually we made a great, a lot of great decisions." You know, we we not only improved our economic base, but we improved our social equality and our, our environment all at the same time, right? So did, did I capture all that right there? Absolutely. And it, I think you especially were, were good at pointing out that the government's role isn't to be the savior state, as you say, <laughs> in my term. It's, it's to set the goals that society values. In other words, solve this problem. And so I, I would say the problem that we need to solve is how do we... Um, what kind of economy can we have that's not dependent on financialization and globalization? What kind of economy serves our national interests? You know, um, and I think it's obvious that it radically improving efficiency and productivity is the, is the answer. And you know, there's a lot of examples of this. I'll, I'll give you one quick thing that that always bugs me. Um, which is to see the huge waste of food in the United States, right? Just vast quantities, up to 40% throughout the whole supply chain. Well, South Korea, as an example, they had the same problem like everybody does, right? You waste what's abundant, what's cheap, right? So, but they they instituted kind of a national policy of trying to reduce food waste. And they've almost, you know, they've made huge gains in reducing food waste, which seems so basic, right? And, and we can't even do that. 
<laughs> so we have a lot of um, a lot of opportunities, you know. And, and if you look at at the efficiency of 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 that were that the efficiency gains in this in the seventies that were like just huge. They were they were monumental gains in appliances and and um, factories and just on and on and on. And so it's like, well, what if we set a goal of we're going to reduce consumption of essential materials by fifty percent and yet still have the same output? Well, that's what the market is good at solving. Once you set right. that goal, yeah, and it's it's doable. I just read an article in Scientific American about how the cement, you know, the process of making cement is very energy intensive, and um, and if you do it, if you approach it engineering wise incrementally, yeah, you, you, we could like cut thirty percent off that if if that was a goal, and and the market would if the market was going to reward those people who who pulled that off. Yeah, I am. Um... I have a, a friend who spent his career working in the um, heating and cooling business uh, for buildings. And he, he's always railing it. He's like, look, if, if, if you're going to build a car, you start as one of the specs for the car, what it's, it's miles per gallon is going to be, what it's, what it's fuel efficiency is going to be. And everybody involved in the car has that as a goal in mind, right? So the folks designing the engine are creating an engine that's going to have that efficiency. The designer of the car is creating the aerodynamics to make sure that the car's, you know, got the least amount of drag so it can hit that that goal. Everybody's working towards that goal. He said with a building, we, we don't have that generally. Like when a building's being built, it, it doesn't have like a, an efficiency number that everybody from the architect to the contractor to the guys hammering the nails are all aware of, right? So you basically get this, building that's just as energy efficient as it kind of is the sum of its components, but they all just sort of, you know, it's what, whatever it is after everything's been slapped together, where if we decided building efficiency uh, was important, um, building energy efficient, efficiency was important, and we had a national standard and everybody built to that and designed to that, we could save, you know, an unbelievable amount of energy that just escapes as, as, as waste heat right now. Um, you're nodding as again as I'm saying this, but that's just one again small example of something we could do, but we don't. And 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 one of the best lessons I learned early in my career was um, I remember I was just graduating high school basically, and uh, or not high school college, and was going to work for a company where um, I was going to have to interact with some engineers, and I didn't know anything about engineering at that point in time. And uh, my girlfriend's father had been a very successful in, in, uh, executive. And I sort of shared this concern with him. It's like, I don't know anything about engineering. And he said, you really don't need to in your role. He said, what you need to do is you just need to know what questions to ask these guys. It's like, if you give them the right problem to solve, they and their expertise will go solve it. So your job isn't trying to understand engineering from soup to nuts to guide the engineers. Your job is to understand what key problems need to be solved that engineering talent can address, right? And I feel like that's pretty much the relationship here between society and government is society just needs to get its act together and be really crisp and mindful about what it's asking government to solve, right? We, we don't have to come up with the solutions ourselves. Once the government sets the parameters, the market will figure all that out. We just need to get really specific about what's important to us. So just like you gave with Korea, right? They were wasting a ton of food until society said, you know what? We're bumping this up to the top of the list. You know, government, we want you to figure out or, or set this, the stage for this food waste problem to go away. And lo and behold, it did because they aligned all those three mechanisms together, right? So you're nodding as I'm saying this, but I think this is really both the power of, of what you're talking about, but also, again, for we as individuals, everybody watching this video, the key takeaway from here is, okay, great. How do I help do my part in making sure that society is driving the right messages to the folks in government to then drive the right outputs we want from the market? Very well said. And that if, if all we have is a fragmented society where um, there's a million voices that uh, can't find anything to agree on, <laughs> then you're going to have uh, difficulty getting there. But um, absolutely. And, and I yeah. think what made the 60s so successful in driving change is that we we had these movements that were really easy for people to to buy into. Right. Hey, we think that racial equality is good and what we should aspire to. And most people hearing it just distilled like that. Yeah, I can't argue with that. That sounds great. I'm in. Right. 
um, I think women are equal to men in terms of rights. And so we should just make that the law of the land. Most rational people hearing that would say, absolutely. When's the march? I'll be there, right? Like these are just obvious crystallized, um, uh, you know, uh, movement, you know, whatever you want to call it, but a, a, a movement to understand that people can say, okay, great. I got it. You don't, you don't have to spend the next hour telling me why I should join this thing. It's just self-evident when I hear it put that way. Right. So how would you describe or encapsulate the movement for the changes that you think we need now? Like what, what would you call it? What would the, what would the banner say? Yeah, you know, that's a tough, that's a tough one, um, Adam, because the sexy stuff is like rockets and in, uh, electric vehicles. And, you know, that stuff is not that can be part of the solution. But it's like, how do you talk about scarcity and make everybody feel warm and fuzzy, you know, and so uh, <laughs> I think it's it's like, we have a I guess I would phrase it like this, we have a tremendous once in a lifetime opportunity to re-engineer American society and the economy and governance to become better, more efficient, at better at providing well-being for the entire populace. And um, that's how I'd say it. You know, it's like it's an opportunity to re-engineer the entire society and, and economy and our system of governance to provide more well-being while using fewer resources. Okay. And be, yeah. And, be, and, and, and I'm becoming sorry a world this. leader, you know, by yeah. leading and, by and, example. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry to kind of like put you on the spot on this, uh, but because I, I think what you're talking about is so important. And the question is, again, like if I'm literally on an elevator with somebody and I tell them about this, like, what's the, what's the, the phrase I can put in their head that, that helps them visualize the outcome and say, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that too. Uh, I'm just spitballing here. But one of the, one of the words that comes to mind is you know, what I hear you say about our current systems is that they're not being run sustainably, right? They're, 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 they all have end dates at the current status quo, right? Um, and so to me, this is, this is almost about sustain, like sustainability is the word that keeps popping into my mind. I don't know if it's social sustainability, but it's like, look, you know, we, we want to have economic models, social models, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a standard of living um, that is going to be there, going to be there tomorrow and hopefully going to be better tomorrow than it is today, right? So to do that, we need to have these sort of sustainable frameworks for making those things happen. We, we don't want a, an economic model that just continues to rape the environment until there's nothing left, right? We, we, we don't want to have a financial system that basically shoves all of the wealth point until there's nothing left for everybody else, right? Um, uh, falling here, I wonder. I wonder if this sort of there's a way to 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 use the word sustainability. I just don't know what I'd put in front of it. Um, but like I said, you know, racial equality, gender equality, those things are just like self-evident when you hear them. Maybe you know, social stability, uh, social sustainability. Uh, is something like that where people are just like, well, yeah, absolutely, I, 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 I want a better tomorrow. And if you if you buy into that, then there are things that nest out of it where it's like, okay, well, then we kind of have to live within our means, right? We can't financialize everything and just pull tomorrow's prosperity in today forever because that's not sustainable, right? It begins to become this litmus test that you can measure ideas against to see whether they actually are pro or con the movement. So, just curious what you're thinking is on there. I'm I'm sold. I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna borrow your phrase, social sustainability. I think that's a great two-word description of this entire complicated topic. Social sustainability. I think you I think you nailed it. Oh well, look, thank you. Um, I'll I'll file the trademark and uh, and we'll <laughs> yes. uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's monetize that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charles, th thank you for going on this massive romp with me. Um, we we've we've been at a much higher level uh, than a higher meta level than we we generally are in these these interviews. But I think um, sometimes it's really really helpful just to get up to the apex and look down on everything and take this true systemic view of it. So uh, for folks that have been on this journey with us in this conversation and are now saying, okay, you know, this, this is great that you're talking about this massive transformation of society that's probably going to take decades and a lot of, you know, political wrangling and fighting with the status quo and whatnot. 
um, for me as an individual, um, how do I navigate this? How do how do I hopefully a support the type of transition I want to see, but also when, we, when you talked about there being winners and losers in this process, how do I increase my odds of being on the winner side? Right, that's a great question, and I think um, and my general view is, you know, in the era that we were exiting, it was um, very. Uh, profitable just to be a passive investor, you know, buy an index fund or buy a sector and kind of move with the um, hot trend of the day. If we're talking about re-engineering our economy and <laughs> industrial base, it, 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 it's more like I think who's going to be profitable in the long run is the people who invest in the long run. And I think it's going to be a stock pickers decade. In other words, rather than just being a passive investor in an index fund or a sector, I think the people who are going to really make the big gains are those who do the the legwork and look into companies <clears throat> that have some sort of asymmetric advantage in in this um, transition period. Like in other words, they they may have the technology, they may have the management, um, they may have the marketing, um, and so that's going to require a lot more research. And of course, uh, a stock picker's paradise is actually a good thing for, for every individual because it's a level playing field. It's up to you. You can do the research and, and learn as much as you can. And, and, um, and what, the more you learn, the more likely it is you're going to pick some, some winners. Um, and I think we can look at sectors that need to be rebuilt. Like I mentioned cement, talk about a boring field, right? I mean, but <laughs> Hey, <laughs> if, if there's going to be gains in that field, then that's going to be a profitable field. And you can say the same thing about, a lot of software and um, energy, you know, and the companies that are going to be involved in rebuilding the the um, national electrical grid. And so it's it. I would look at companies um, that are considered boring <laughs> because they're they're just we take them for granted as essentials, you know. But right. I think there's or, or, a or, lot of growth or, or sectors that are boring because what I hear yeah. you saying is is yeah sometimes the, the today's winners might be tomorrow's winners there if they move fast enough but there's probably going to be a lot of disruption in in these industries and of course that makes opportunity for investors right if you you find these disruptors early on and can ride their ascent you can you can have phenomenal returns yeah and then there's there's a lot of sectors that are that have been hot and then they then they sell off like 3D fabrication well that's definitely a technology that's that's here to stay right and so you know you can watch it and go okay it, it got hot, it, it got overvalued, now it's sold off, everybody thinks the sector's dead. Well, maybe there's an opportunity there. You know, in other words, there's a sector that's growing and it's just um, it's um, picking the right companies within that sector. So I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunities for that, especially for people that decide to just buy it and forget it. Like I own this these shares or and you know, I'm just gonna set them aside and forget I, I own them because it's a long-term prospect. All right. Well, look, uh, I know that uh, Wealthion's uh, financial advisors, uh, when they watch this, our endorsed financial advisors, when they watch this, uh, they're going to send you a nice donation on your Patreon because you're basically <laughs> creating a great commercial for having a good active uh, manager on your team. Right. Um, all right. So in addition to sort of the investing side of things, uh, this sort of future of, 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 of scarcity and, and the uh, premium that's going to be placed on efficiency and sustainability. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that there's also investments that'll be beneficial just in, in one's lifestyle around those themes. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of my bywords is invest in yourself. And um, that that's a way of saying, how can I make my own lifestyle and the, the, uh, my own household more efficient and use less capital resources and, and labor to get um, a lifestyle full of well-being and security? Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And because I've known you for a long time, Charles, and I'm not trying to out all your personal behaviors here, but uh, I, I know that you have really prioritized uh, self-resilience uh, very highly in, in how you construct your own life and you know, even to the point of growing a fair amount of your own food and all, all that type of stuff. Um, and talking about self-resilience, so we, we've now been talking about really themes of several of your recent books. I was going to hold them up here, but I realized my wife has packed them already because we're getting ready for our move in a bit. Um, but I don't know if you've got them there to hold up. If not, we'll put the covers up on the screen here. But um, we, we spent most of this time talking about the themes of your most recent book. And, and if you can, remind folks of the title of that book. 
Yeah, it's um, Global Crisis National Renewal, a revolutionary grand strategy for the United States. And then the, my last book was um, called Self-Reliance uh, in the 21st Century. And that discusses these, these themes we just, we just touched upon. All right, great. Well, Charles, look, this has been uh, it's always an enjoyable discussion with you. Um, folks, Charles and I will pick up the phone and before I know it, like two or three hours uh, is gone. <laughs> um, it's really one of my, 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 my favorite delights in life is to, to get on the phone with Charles. Um, you've gotten a little sneak peek into the type of stuff we talked about here and what a great thinker that Charles is. So Charles, for folks that have enjoyed this conversation, um, maybe this is the first time that they're getting exposure to you. Where can they go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, please visit me at of2minds.com. Um, you'll have links to my blog, um, sample chapters of my books, and all my archives are free. And if you want to support my work, I'm on Patreon at Charles Hugh Smith. One word, Charles Hugh Smith. So, um, but uh, thank you, Adam, for um, allowing me to indulge my interest in these big topics that are hard to get a, hard to get our arms around, but which have big payoffs when we do. Well, absolutely. Thank you for carrying the standard and doing this this hard work. And um, uh, I think it's super important for folks. You know, a lot of folks who are watching these videos are taking a mindset of, okay, great. What am I going to take from the, the guest and deploy in the market today, next week, you know, next month, next quarter. Um, we're talking about something that's much higher level over the span of years and decades. And it's very important to kind of get that context to nest your more tactical decision-making within. So again, thanks so much for coming on here, Charles. Real quick, as we wrap up, I just want to note a couple of resources for folks. Um, one, uh, we are getting closer to Wealthion's uh, spring conference in March. It's Saturday, March 18th. Just want to remind folks that the early bird pricing for that event is still in effect. Um, quick dial through of the faculty for the event. Uh, Lacey Hunt, Mark Faber, Michael Pento, Danielle DiMartino Booth, Stephanie Pomboy, uh, Rick Rule, Nick Jurley talking about housing, Doomberg talking about energy, uh, Craig Wishner talking about farmland investing, Mike Maloney talking about the precious metals, Lucky Lopez talking about the auto market. We got a few other folks uh, that are still coming on board for that event. But as you can tell, it's a great uh, gathering of, of really true domain experts. It's going to be a wonderful time to learn more about the event and register for it and lock in that early bird price. Just go to wealthion.com slash conference. Um, and as I gave a nod to earlier, um, for all of the reasons that that Charles talked about here, but specifically his point about, you know, a key to success going forward as an investor is really going to be adopting an active management uh, investing process. Um, look, if you've got a, a, a great financial advisor who can do that for you, who understands all the, the big issues and trends that Charles and I talked about here, great, stick with them, definitely should. But if not, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, consider talking to one of Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors. Um, they'll give you a free consultation, doesn't cost you anything, they'll sit down with you, uh, do a portfolio review, tell you what they think you should do. Uh, you can do it yourself, you can deploy it with your existing financial advisor, or if you like these guys, you can continue talking to them. Um, to go set up one of those free consultations, just go to Wealthion.com. Again, doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a free public service those guys offer. Um, all right. Well, look, if you've enjoyed uh, Charles's inaugural debut here on the Wealthion channel, would like to see him come back on the channel in the future, as well as other great minds like him, Please support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Charles, my friend, it's just been wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Adam. All right, everybody else, thanks so much for watching.